Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance, a podcast focused on crypto governance and DAO-related topics. This week, we have Dune Analytics. I'm sure pretty much all of you have heard about Dune. They are the most widely used and, and popular analytics tool within crypto. I'm really excited about this podcast in particular because I think Frederick and, and his co-founder have been very thoughtful in building Dune over the past few years in terms of the community building, in terms of the marketing and branding, and in terms of also what they don't focus on. So super excited to dive in. And without further ado, welcome, Frederick. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. So I guess to kick things off, Dune started, I believe, in 2018. And at the time, it was just the two of you in Oslo, Norway. Could you give a, a quick background on just your backgrounds, how did you guys meet, and and what drove you to start Dune and focus on analytics? Yeah. So Mats, my co-founder, and I, we used to work for like a big Norwegian corporation. We were lucky enough to be able to on on some crypto stuff during essentially the spring of, of 2018. I have had had a crypto interest for a long time and, and Mats had as well. And of course, there, there was the whole hype in 2017. So I already then started working on some crypto projects for that company. Mats ended up sort of joining my effort and, and we built a bunch of prototypes on Ethereum, first and foremost, played around with, I remember we were researching plasma chains and, and some of these things that, that were you know, a big thing, or at least in theory back then. And then we did that for a while. Of course, the hype died out. And then we realized like this company is not going to do pursue anything on this front and, and also realized that in general, this technology is very young and weird. So a big company like this is, is probably not the right place to be. And on their behalf as well, I don't think it's, it was the right thing for them to focus on. So then we started thinking, okay, if we really want to do this, if we really believe in this space, what could we do? Like, how can we actually go further into it instead of stepping down from this crypto world? And then we realized that it was quite hard to, to analyze the data. So we had built some smart contracts and, and were poking around on chain. And we realized that it, it is actually a lot of work to figure out what's going on. And back then, most this was early, mid-2018. Etherscan wouldn't tell you much about what happened in an actual smart contract. It was just like tokens transferred or the ETH transferred, right? So it was it's quite crude. And we figured, you know, if, if people are going to build products in this space, they're going to need to understand if people users are, are actually using it. That's you know obvious in the Web2 world that that's the only way to make a successful product is actually looking at usage and understanding if people are using it and then iterating from there. So that was kind of the initial seed. We ended up sort of thinking about this and, and started, I think, trying to... So I had like a couple of contacts in the space from... I, I had been at Web Summit in... Lisbon in 2017 and not like a small handful of crypto folks that I could kind of ping. So we ended up getting some intros to some teams and tried to validate this idea this summer 2018. I remember drawing charts in like a notebook, like a fiscal notebook and said like, hey, you know, if we build this thing for you, you can look at this chart for your product. Would you, would you, would you buy it? And so we ended up sort of getting a tiny bit of validation and then eventually, actually, it was Mats that, that came to me and he was kind of 
more of his his job than me. He spent eighty percent of his time not on crypto and only twenty percent on crypto. So we were jamming on these ideas, and one day he just came to me and said, "Hey, I quit my job yesterday," <laughs> and then I basically instantly realized that then I would have to do this do the same. So that was how we kind of made the the leap and decided to start Dune. And then just a couple of weeks later, we we ended up going to Berlin for East Berlin on one day notice. And we had just started the company, but we had 3,000 euros or, or dollars in it because that's the minimum amount you need to start a corporation in Norway. And we spent like you know 10K in the first two weeks to just fly to Berlin and on short notice and try to meet some folks that we could sell it to. So that was the very beginning of June. I remember sometime in 2018, it must have been, I was probably just on Twitter and I found you and, and I reached out to you guys. And, and I think I remember the call where I was like, who are you guys? Like, where, where are you from? And, and you say, we're in Norway. And I think at that point, that was the first crypto company I've spoken to that was out of Norway. Like, what was the crypto scene in Norway at the time? And, and what is it like today? It was pretty much non-existent. There were some folks doing some things, but not really folks that would be potential clients of Dune. So there were a few folks interested and some small meetups and these things, but but all in all, not a lot of actual project being built at all. So that's why we <laughs> figured we had to go to to Berlin, right? We're, we were just sitting in Oslo. We just started this company and we're like, okay, we're actually in this co-working space where there are a couple of crypto people, but they were doing different things. So... Yeah, and we quite quickly learned that that like we need to go abroad to meet uh, customers and and users. So, yeah, the the Norwegian crypto scene, I'd say there are a few companies, but not like a big coherent scene. But two of the co-founders of Nansen are Norwegian, and one of the co-founders of Axie is Norwegian. So there are a few folks here and there doing pretty cool companies, but. It's not like a massive scene. Not all of these are, are based in, in Norway even. So, yeah. But I think it's mostly... We don't really think about Norway that much when it comes to building the company. <laughs> That's a funny way of putting it. But really helpful context, I think, on the origin behind Dune. I know there's a ton of stuff in between then and present, which I think we'll, we'll cover in the next hour. But I think for listeners, it'd be helpful just to hear like the current state of Dune, could you summarize how you guys are doing now in terms of size, focus, and and just other things you communicate? For sure. So we spend a lot of time on our new data platform that's been in the works for, for over a year. It's out in, in beta. Anyone can use it on our site. This is a major new foundation for us. So we kind of took a bet quite some time ago that this would be the, the future of Dune and I have focused a lot of our resources on it. So actually, even through like the, the bull market of the last year or so, we have invested a lot in this system that, that wasn't really live for quite some time. So this is a, a major theme inside of Dune. This system will allow way, way, way more performance queries. It allows multi-chain queries, which doesn't really exist today. So that means that anyone can traverse all the different layers and systems in, in one single interface and stack things on top of each other and benchmark, which I think is going to be very exciting for the 
the coming era with, with roll-ups and all of these things to get a better overview of this now more heterogeneous real world of blockchains and execution layers. So that is quite exciting. A lot of work that also comes with making it easier for users to contribute, to build data tables on Dune, to make it easier to work with Dune. Dune is a lot about community and collaboration and letting people work together. So this is something we're very excited about. We've recently launched a new Teams feature so people can work together, come together and create content and edit it across different sort of individual accounts, which we also hope will increase collaboration across the space. We see sort of different data collectives forming on Dune, which is super fascinating. A lot of them sort of picking up bounties and getting paid and these things, which we're also excited about. So those are some of the, the key themes. In general, we, we try to make crypto data accessible, make it as easy as possible to unearth insights and work with this data. So there are a lot of, lot of the things we, we want to do to just lower the barrier for people to analyze the data. And then also, I don't know when this will be published, but we have a conference in Berlin called DuneCon in two weeks, 15th of September, which we're also spending a lot of time on. And it's going to be exciting to get the community in together in person for the first time. In terms of the Dune team, I think we're now a little over 40 people. So we've scaled relatively carefully relative to other companies, I think. We did... It's less than two years ago that we did our first hire. So it was only Mots and me for over two years running Dune, basically because we just didn't have any money. And then we did the seed round eventually two years after our founding. And then we hired our first engineer. And then we just been very, very rigorous with having very high quality people come on, but also that we can onboard people efficiently. And I think if you scale too fast, that becomes quite hard. So we are growing relatively quickly this year. We were 18 people at the end of last year, and now we're 40, soon to be 45, 50, I think. So in percentage terms, it's rapid scaling, but, but relative to many other companies in the space, I think we've scaled a little bit slower. And especially, of course, given these sort of times in, in the markets and the uncertainty, it, to me, it feels good to not have an oversized team and rather focus on epic execution and sort of be very rigorous with, with who we decide to hire. I guess circling back to like what, the, what I recall the consensus narratives to be in 2018, 2019 for data and analytics companies, I remember a lot of investors, you know, investors like to talk like MBA types, you know, they, they talk stuff like barriers to entry are, are terms they would use. But I remember there being a, a pretty consensus narrative, at least among investors that, hey, data companies building for blockchain are not really going to do that well. The barriers to entry are too low, all the data is available. And so there's going to be too much competition for any one big winner to emerge. And, and in my experience, the opposite turned out to be true. And, and I think clearly it's very difficult to, to build a data business in this space. But curious how you think about you know, this, what it's like to build a data company in a crypto space where all of the data is publicly available. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. You know, we, we got a hundred or so investor notes back in 20, early 20 or 2018 and early 19, which was pretty brutal. And I think a lot of that boiled down to people assuming that you couldn't really build a defensible business because of the open data. And I think this is kind of the fun, fun part about, I guess, venture and, and how weird technology or non-intuitive technology 
investing is in general, because I think looking at you now, the, the exciting thing is this open data and, and what we can build and enable because of that open data, maybe as opposed to what you can with a closed data environment where we see sort of basically all current data businesses operating within where data is closed within an organization or within a team and the product is built for that. Whereas, you know, I think what we're trying to do is really, really unleash this data and let it be out there, let it, you know, all the knowledge around this data aggregate and build, let people build on top of each other. And I, I'm very excited about that because I think this hasn't really been the case for any data product or sort of data source previously where this was, was possible. So I think, you know, we, we try to let people do as much as they can with this data. I think there's probably you know, still many things you can do in the data realm in this space, but I think the edge that we have and that we're excited about is, is this community of people coming together and building on top of each other. And I think that's quite powerful. And especially when, when it comes to, I think it's getting more complicated. You know, previously it was all Ethereum layer one. And if you cover that, you have everything. But now there are so many different systems, so many different things to operate and integrate and, and make seamless that I think something like Dune becomes quite powerful because we have the scale to get all of this data and, and get it in a nice format and then have all of these people that come together and work on it and you can build from that. And and I think, you know, that is quite unique. And, and you know, in all humbleness, I'll say, I think we had a good insight back in 2018, 2019, that like this is the way to do it. Uh, where the most obvious ideas back then were like, oh no, go sell to the traders or, you know, create some proprietary thing on top of it and then just sell access to it. And I think now it's kind of paying off for us that we were quite hard with ourselves and, and because we couldn't raise any money, we have to think really hard about our choices. And I think what we're seeing now is that you know, it is actually very powerful to rather embrace this openness and let people work together rather than building more closed product. Really helpful, I think, to hear how you've thought about building Dune into a, a differentiated company with moats. Community is almost a buzzword in crypto. When people say the word, it generally refers to a few hundred or few thousand folks on the project discords. They'll be asking about token price and, and other related questions and maybe a, a handful of valuable contributors, but generally it feels like a loaded term. I think you guys have taken a very different approach and it's shown in the power user community that Dune's built. You guys are hosting the conference in a few weeks. Like, why is it different for Dune? How did you get the community to, to become so engaged? Yeah, I think we've not taken an easy path, for instance, by, by not launching a token. I think that, you know, that there's kind of proof of work in being in the Dune ecosystem or being in the Dune community because there's no this like financial gaming you can do. You kind of, if you want to be in the Dune Discord, you better have like an a question or a problem you want to solve and, and you're going to get some help, but you also got to actually try to learn how to do this analysis and, and write some SQL and these things. And I think that creates you know, hopefully a more sustainable and long lasting community. And, and this is something I care a lot about. I think, oh, you know, of course, 
there are these crazy hypes and cycles and all that. And, and I try to, whenever we face decisions, to ask myself, like, what will this look like if prices uh, are down 90% tomorrow? Like, are we building a product that, that works, that still makes sense? If prices are down 90%, like, would these people stick around if it's down 90%? And maybe all of them won't, but I think, you know, we see from our usage data and, and if you just go into the dude discord as an sort of analogy, you know, and people are still super active and don't really care if, if prices are down because they, they're sol solving real problems and, and are engaged and, and care about building these things out and helping get these dashboards being built. So I think that is, is very beautiful. And there's also like a very strong culture of, helping each other out, which I think is, is fantastic. And so to see people creating tutorials and, and really, you know, for no financial profits or anything like that, they just sort of want to contribute. So I think for us, it's quite powerful to build this sort of step-by-step -step without the, the token incentives. And, you know, even way back when it was only me for two years, like we, of course, did all the support. And like, I essentially... Brute forced uh, Tio now at Uniswap to to learn SQL. He was like, came to us and was like, "Hey, can you give me this in Excel?" And we were like, "No, but we can learn you SQL." So like, let's set up a weekly call to learn you how to use SQL. And I think that spirit still exists a little bit in the Dune community, where people genuinely try to help. And and I think Mots and I both spent countless hours on our early users to to help them succeed. I guess since you you brought up community, you you brought up Teo. I guess next natural next question for me, and and this really goes back as as far as I I remember doing is you guys were always tasteful about the brand, and it's I remember the first kind of branding affinity I developed for Dune was certainly the color scheme, but more importantly the merch you guys made, and and the first merch I got from you guys was the cap, the blue cap with the Dune logo in the front. And I don't know why, I couldn't tell you why, but that little gift did develop an affinity for me and the brand. But I'd love to hear how you, what's your philosophy behind the branding and just the aesthetic of Dune? Because I think for a data company in particular, this is something that really differentiates you guys. Yeah, I remember this room here in my office in my apartment that I'm sitting in, I had, I had the whole floor full of these denim caps way back and I you know, manually mailed them all over the world. It was so painful because I had to go through this like many step process with the Norwegian postal office for every single one. And they were sent like, you know, very much all over the world. So it, it took me a lot of hours to, to send those out. But yeah, to your question, I just in general care about things being done with, with passion and integrity. So integrity is one of our values. We so care a lot about the values we have and, and they're on our careers page and whatever. But one of them is integrity. And this is something I think a lot about. I want everything we do to have integrity. And that to me, that means that the receiver sort of feels the passion that goes into creating it. And that I think is, is nicely expressed in, in the swag, but also, you know, really anywhere where you would, you interface with you. And if that is, in our application, the, what you feel when you hit the button, the runtime of a query, any sort of thing that we can bake in there that makes the receiver and user feel like, oh, this is this is like a beautiful piece of work. That is something that I care a lot about. And 
on the topic of swag specifically, I really feel like so many companies like pour millions of dollars into their brands, but then you know they turn around and they print like two thousand of the like cheapest worst T-shirt and, and slap their logo on it, and then you know I, I going to these crypto events throughout, I just like realized I, I get all this crap that's just so not nice and, and so short lived and all that so basically what we're trying to do is, is to make something that is exciting and that people you touch and feel it and you get inspired you're like oh this is actually you know real craftsmanship and someone cared about this and you know many of our items have you know sort of different labels inside the actual swag because you know that's also part of the experience so yeah it just matters to me and i actually you know, we're a billion dollar company and all of that, but I actually spend just as much of my time micromanaging swag design now as I did when it was only Mots and me. I love that answer. And I can totally relate to all these companies creating this, you know, spending lots of money, millions of dollars for sure for the large ones on, on swag. And it's like, if you actually see how people use it, it's like, you know, a lot of it is t-shirts to wear to bed or or to go to the gym. It really has very little it builds very little brand affinity between the, the user and the company. And I, I wish people were, were a little bit more thoughtful about what may seem like very small decisions like swag and merch that actually have a lot of resonance with the consumer. And, and you know, it's sort of, your approach sort of reminds me of, you know, having grown up, I was always a, a big Apple fanboy and reading about Steve Jobs. And, and he was, from what I've read, obsessed with the concept of like how customers perceive Apple what they impute about Apple based only on the logo and the packaging, because you see Apple packaging and you perceive it and you probably think, well, if the packaging is so good, maybe the product is really good too. I'm curious if you've thought about this concept and is there a way you want consumers and Dune users to perceive Dune based on the swag you guys create? Yeah, so I definitely thought a lot about this in general. One way I think about it is I think most sort of lines that humans have created between categories are artificial and doesn't have to exist. So, you know, why does it matter what our UI looks like, but not like what t-shirt you get? To me, it's just like, you know, we were, and this comes down, I think also to like business versus non-business. And I feel like there's this notion that like business has to be kind of this, or very often is this like diluted sort of bleak experience and then you, you you're done with your work for the day and then you can go out and like actually explore the world and you know with all the nice colors and things and music and everything that you can you know indulge in and to me those distinctions are just not necessary and i want like and this is all crypto community is great that that you you I'm so, so happy that I work in a space that runs on Twitter and not on LinkedIn, to put it like that, um, because people can actually express themselves. And so I think that's just what we're trying to do with with all of this is to maintain that integrity yeah. and passion into it. And I don't think it's like a particular theme that we're trying to do. I think we want things that that look great, feels great. And if that's, you know, posting the right meme or having the right type of swag, it depends. Like it, it can be, I think, novel in different ways. And as long as it's perceived as something that excites the, the recipient, then I think we've succeeded.
I, I think you guys have succeeded. I mean, empirically, I don't think most people would be proud of wearing some swag of a, of a data and analytics company. But in Dune's case, people are thrilled to wear it, right? People will wear it over a really luxury brand. So I think, I think that, you know, stuff like that, I mean, I say it in jest, but I like on, on that point, I think this is essentially my benchmark or a rule of thumb for these things is if someone looks at this, you know, let's say a t-shirt, when they walk past someone on the street, do they think this is a cool t-shirt or not? Do they recognize it and say, oh, that's a nice t-shirt? And then I think it's a bonus if they know, you know what Dune is, for instance. But my goal is always that someone will think about this as, oh, that's, that's a neat item absolutely independent of the our logo or anything like that but if they see the shirt and they see oh that must be a, a crypto data analytics company then i think we've failed because that typically doesn't have the the right vibes you know or this is like some lame tech person but if they're just like oh this this is a fire piece of swag and then it turns out you know maybe they know and they think it's even cooler and i think this is the same for like band t-shirts for instance exact same thing like i wear band t-shirts but i only wear band t-shirts that look cool in yeah. whether you know the reference or not but if you do know it then of course we one could have a lot of great encounters but that's not needed for sort of people to appreciate it and i guess there, there's another important aspect you know which would maybe be be obvious to most crypto folks and that is the supply should be limited so it's really important that you don't spread yourself too thin and create a million of, of these things because it then it's not that much fun. And I think this also sort of comes back for us a little bit to the Dune community where like we want to you know, reward real engagement and people that really do interesting things. We don't need 100,000 extra people in our Discord to just call and we're not going to send you any swag for just like coming around. But if you do actually put in the work and create something amazing, we will send you like a rare piece of super exciting swag. It became pretty clear to me after spending even a little bit of time chatting with you, Frederick, and, and Matt, is you guys are really into music. Or at least I know you are, Frederick. And and when I say really into music, I don't mean like, you know, how most people are into music where they're, they know the artists and they listen to the songs. It seems to me that you really study like artists as as a category and try to understand not only the music, but the zeitgeist within which they live, all the brand stuff that they work on. I'm curious if music is indeed an inspiration when it comes to building Dune, and if so, how? Yeah, I'm definitely quite into music, definitely quite into to understanding who these people are and, and how they do their work. I don't think, again, it, to me, it comes back to these sort of blurred lines between what categories exist and or, or maybe not. And, and I read a lot of business stuff and I read business newsletters and tech things, right? And I read business biographies, but I also read other biographies, for instance, on artists. And, and I was in New York not that long ago and met, met you, Larry, and I did the Raekwon audiobook while there just to, to get into the New York vibe. And for me, this is all, yeah, different types of inspiration that we can put into our work, but it doesn't have to be, you know, per se inspiration in terms of, let's say, cultural output from us. This could also be just like in terms of working hard, in terms of creative process, like how do people go about creating these things? I saw the, the Beatles documentary on, on Get Back on the spring 
And I found it super interesting, not per se because I'm that into the Beatles, but you get so close to these folks that obviously I've created some of the greatest sort of cultural output of human existence. And just having this chance to, to spend nine or 10 hours or however long it was, you know, super close into their process, that is something that I find super fascinating. And then one can think about, okay, what's, what's their dynamic? What's our dynamic as a company or as a founder pair or whatever it might be? And just draw inspiration from whatever inspires you and try to learn from that in an open-ended way. So yeah, for sure. I definitely try to, and I, I really in general try to not become too narrow. I'm a bit concerned with sort of only reading the business stuff or only the tech stuff or only the crypto stuff and sort of getting a little stuck in, in those mentalities. So I really try to, to zoom out and sort of maybe read some you know, novels to just get a totally different perspective on, on things. And maybe sometimes that inspires me or goes into my work with you. And maybe something, sometimes not. It's just like totally un unrelated. And I kind of like it when it, I don't know upfront if this will be relevant for you or not, but I don't think everything has to be in a super clear way. And I think my Twitter bio says that I'm into books without how to on the cover. And I think that is, you know, this sentiment where I don't like it that much when it is, it's this sort of distilled, very formalized, like, oh, do this and you will win or you will create something great or you will you know, succeed in your career. But like maybe rather read the Raekwon biography and, and just see his struggles and, and maybe, you know, get inspired by that. I think all of this goes back to the overarching thing of, of like a company is a reflection of the founders and early employees identity in the same way that an artist, a musician, like their work is a reflection of their emotions and their focus and their thoughtfulness. Like building a company is the same thing. You hear stories about how when musicians are building albums, they'll enter a different state of mind and they'll go to a different location for six months and stay there throughout the course of the production. And then they'll leave once it's done and, and, and wrap things up. And I'm not saying that like building a company, it's just two people or, or the co-founders. But like, I think every decision you make has a, a wide ranging impact and it is ultimately a creative process. So, yeah, what I think is important with artists is that they take a feeling or a moment to make it tangible in some shape or form. And I think this is something we strive to do or I strive to do with, with Dune as well and not you know, not just build the products we build, but help tell the story or express the story of like, you know, how we've been feeling, what we've been doing, how we've been thinking. And sort of make that, I think that's part of shaping our culture and displaying to people who we are, but also, you know, hopefully that can be valuable in and of itself. And I think this idea of being able to, to do different types of outputs and be open-minded in, in how that is done and in some shapes and forms, Think about ourselves as artists as well. If you write a novel or if I write a blog post about sort of the early days of Dune, then yeah, maybe it doesn't have to be that different or it's a different type of cultural output at the end of the day. It's, it's just two sides of, of the same thing. I love this conversation so much. I feel like just having a podcast just talking about music and business would be a thing for sure. But it strikes me that 
a lot of founders, you know, I think there's like this consensus narrative that founders are business people and most of them read business books and MBA type books, right? And then they'll read Stratechery and blogs like that. When I think the reality is most founders are very human and they actually listen to a lot of music, maybe are really into art and they actually take probably equal amounts of inspiration or more from the art world, from the music world, I guess, broadly put the creative world than the business world, because starting a business, I mean, we'd love to get your thoughts on this, but it's, it's inherently a act of creation. It's a creative act. You want to make your stamp in the world. You want to feel heard. You want people to see that you have taste and you want to put yourself out there. And that's very similar, I think, to musicians and artists of all types. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. And I think maybe especially when it comes to, to leadership, if that is, you know, maybe in our early days sort of leading or creating a community or, or if it's about building a team, I think these things also really matter, right? The way in which you express yourself, if you just like walk through a, a, a a bullet point list of OKRs every now and then, like it's probably not that exciting to work for you. And and, and as we grow the organization and, and sort of I become a leader of more people, I aspire to you know embed more different ways of expressing myself and expressing you know to the team things we want to do. And and, and just as a recent example, like I was camping a couple of weeks ago. And then you get a lot of time to think. And then you have this, this current like micro environment. And I told the team just on, on an all hands just recently, like, you know, essentially we're now camping. And by that, I mean that we have a backpack and you need to decide what to put it in. And going camping, it's like, enforces a lot of discipline because you can only, you know, bring what you can carry and you cannot change your mind down the road. And I think. You know, having VC funding in abundance, you're kind of always driving a car. You can just like stop and refill it and you can shove anything in the back of it. It, it doesn't matter. You don't have to pack carefully. But when you can't rely on sort of stopping by the gas station or driving a car, you have to really think. You know, you have to really think about, you know, do I want to put this thing in a backpack? Do I want to hire this person? Am I ready to sort of carry that? Is that going to be useful when I put up my camp? Am I going to regret if I didn't put something else in the backpack? And that's just like one example of, of, of these type of pictures I, I like to paint to help express, you know, how I think about building the business and, and put the right mindset into to our team. I love that. And then last question on the music front. Biggie or Tupac, who's better? <laughs> I'm quite pragmatic. I'm from Norway, so I can enjoy everything. Depends on the mood. I think I was more of a Biggie back in the day. I got into hip hop because I'm I'm a freestyle skier. So initially, I think that was probably the preference, a bit on the, the more low-key, harder side. Now, I think I appreciate the, the West Coast production and, and energy maybe a bit more, but but I, I certainly really like both of them. Totally. I was born in New York, and so Biggie in my childhood was definitely the artist I was I was more attuned to. But I think as I've grown, I've, I've slowly come around to Tupac. I mean, just the energy and emotion he has in his lyrics. I think the artist that probably comes closest is Eminem. And even then, Tupac is just way more emotionally charged. So slowly coming around to the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has this like out of this world kind of persona or expression. Changing topics a little bit. You guys wrote a blog post a few months ago about the history of Dune and and there was a lot of information included about like the fundraising history and the conversation with investors and just like the overall dynamic 
with VCs. And I think on this podcast, you've also just sort of talked extensively about how many conversations you guys have went through, how many early rejections you guys went through and, and how you felt that dynamic change as you guys got more and more momentum. And just curious, why do you guys sort of write about and, and talk about this stuff publicly in terms of the fundraising and, and interactions with investors? Like, what does it mean for you? Yeah, I think it's a little bit just for fun. I think some of these stories we've been through are pretty crazy. So it's interesting to document it. I think we haven't, I think at the, essentially our, our, our journey, I would describe as kind of binary the last, we've been doing this for four years and it was like two years of zero and then like two years of one, basically. So meaning that it was like a lot of uphill battles initially and then it's been growing very quickly for the last couple of years and i think those those stand in pretty stark contrast and and i think it's been fun to document what it actually felt like back then especially maybe when when you think about oh we 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 reached a billion dollars at pretty quick short amount of time but we also actually you know just one year before that were two people hustling pretty hard so I guess I just like to, to write and, and try to express these things and then also learn that people appreciate it and, and uh, find it inspiring and motivating for them sometimes. So that, that's great to hear. And then, yeah, I think, of course, it, it's also part of building our, our culture and, and uh, for the community and, and for our team to, to understand that things doesn't necessarily always come easy. And sometimes you have to stick to your conviction and, and just work pretty hard. And I also think that I didn't think that much about our hardship back then. So I've been kind of you know, documenting this a little bit. And I think only in, in hindsight, I kind of realized how, how much pain we actually went through. Because when you're in it, you kind of just have to get to the next thing and try to not get too caught up on up in it. So I actually didn't really feel that down or stressed in the heat of it. But after the fact, I think I've come to realize like, oh shit, we actually had a pretty hard time back then. And then I've tried to to document those things. I'm super, super appreciative of, of you documenting it. And it's one of these things, like all founders get rejections from VCs it's, and VCs get rejections from LPs. Like that's the game, right? Is your whole life you're going to be rejected and people are going to doubt you. And what I found is a lot of founders in private and with their team, with their significant other, with their co-founder, they will use, just like musicians do, you know, Kanye, Eminem, they'll use these rejections as the fuel to fire the flame, right? It's like a nonstop screw the haters attitude that founders learn to, you know, take that negative feedback and create a positive feedback loop out of it. And the fact that you guys took some of this negativity and, and created a culture out of it and, and materials that are, you know, as a perspective, I think, employee who's reading your blog about this page, it really, you know, personality and integrity come out. And I think it makes June much more enticing of a company and people self-select into it as a result. So I don't know how many founders are listening to this, but I think using some of those frustrations of rejections for positive feedback loop and creating that positive feedback loop does go such a long way. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's important to, of course, note as well to not sort of have too much resentment or, or, annoyance with the rejections you get let it steer you in terms of 
wanting to succeed and, and wanting to make the right decisions. But also, I think I hold no grudges against anyone that ever passed on us. So I think that is important to note as well, to sort of not, you know, not be, you know, the, it's a hit to the player, but also definitely let it help shape you. And, and I think for us, the, the main benefit we got from all the, the hardship was it was so disciplinating on, on which decisions we made not hiring people. And especially these days, I'm, I'm quite concerned that so many projects that raised, you know, X million dollars more or less out of the gate are not spending enough time on the drawing board as a very small team and just, you know, really thinking hard about their model and, and trying to get a little bit of traction and not becoming, I think, you know, becoming 10 people without product market fit, I think is a major mistake for almost any company. And I'm concerned that a lot of teams don't or scale way too fast just because they have the cash because of the the crazy fundraising market in the last couple of years. That was a good clarification on on yeah, not taking rejections personally. I was thinking about that meme in the Michael Jordan documentary where he just keeps saying the line, and I took that personally. It's useful to a degree, right? when you're working the nights, weekends, but it has to be channeled in a, in a healthy manner. Yeah, it's definitely not whoever rejected us that I think about whenever we succeed. It's not like, oh, I'm going to show them. It's, of course, good to know that, like, whenever you think about one of those things back then, like, we, we ended up you know, prevailing and, and doing something cool, but that's for sure not the motivation for doing it. The motivation is to, to build something great and help users and, and push this crypto web cheese space forward at least. And the other thing you touched on is I think the dangers of excess cash and raising huge rounds at the seed or series A level, possibly before the team's ready. I think as a founder that's again been in crypto through various cycles, had to fundraise through various environments and, and build teams in different environments, what are some of the mistakes you see other founders making that maybe have raised their first rounds more recently? Like, what do you wish you could tell them? Yeah, I think just be very, very cautious about whether you have a product market fit. Are people using what you're, you're building? Are they retained? Do they come back? I think those are the two most important questions to, to answer. And if that's not the case, like, I think chances are that, that hiring more people is not how you really you know, get to that state. It is about iterating. It's about changing the direction a lot. And, you know, this is what, what we did. Like we, as I alluded to, like our initial idea was to build a bunch of like product metrics dashboards, but we got a lot of pushback where people were saying, you can't make any money building these dashboards. And then we said, you know, actually maybe they're kind of right. Maybe what we should do is let anyone build dashboards and flood the world with dashboards and be an enabling layer instead of being the provider per se. And I think that would have been way harder for us to, to make that change if we were like 10 plus people that were already building out this dashboard project. But since it was just lots of me, we could just have a good hard talk and we could like on the spot say, okay, fuck it. We're like, we ended up firing our customers. We had two customers. That was our only traction. We said, you know, sorry guys, or congratulations guys, this stuff is now going to be free on our website and we're going to open this up to anyone. And I think that would have been really hard if we had like a 
you know, head of business on sales and uh, you know a couple of teams that that sort of were invested in this product we already had a tiny bit of traction on so yeah i think that is the, the main lesson i also think that focus is extremely important and we for instance only did ethereum for over two years we just focused on making ethereum data sets the best they could possibly be and a lot of our competitors way back the obvious way to make money was just like right. all the chains because there weren't that many people building on these systems but there were different chains with a lot of funding from like 2017 hype and all that so you could go and integrate 20 different chains and make money from that. We never did that initially we do it now because obviously now a lot of these systems are, are more interesting and have real usage. But it's certainly well to only focus on Ethereum for a long time and just make the absolute best tool for Ethereum. And we still have a lot of work to do to make that even easier on Ethereum. So I think that is also incredibly important, especially in hard times. Like really don't launch multi-products and have bunch of these things try to do th one thing super duper well and i think all of these advices are just plain startup one-on-one -on -one stuff i don't think it's that much different just because you're building on a blockchain i think a lot of the same ideas apply should be thought about and carefully listened to for anyone building in this space just as much as in web 2 and for instance we 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 didn't get accepted to YC because the the video solution didn't work, but we did see the like YC startup videos and were super influenced on how we tried to build Dune by just uh, doing the YC startup school. So I think it's as easy as that. Of course, there are different elements to crypto, and it's more of a community element than some of these things. But it's still, also a lot of the same general ideas makes sense for crypto founders as well. This, the psychology of of large rounds is, is something I think about quite a bit, and I don't really see this spoken about in public too much, but certainly the sort of thing I'll chat with Derek about in private is, like, you know, just like parents often condition their kids, and, you know, as a result, the kids, when we're older, we, we tend to find our parents and our behaviors. I think a lot of founders are conditioned by, you know, whatever they're reading, whoever they're speaking to, and it seems like, at least, and this is completely anecdotal, but it certainly has been my experience, founders who grew up reading stuff like, you know, Paul Graham and, and Bill Gurley and, and blogs and, and like, you know, USV, which is Fred's ABC blog. They're a little bit more pragmatic when it comes to fundraising and probably a little bit more conservative and would say stuff like, well, hey, you know, we should raise more money once we have product market fit. But th there's also this crop of founders that doesn't read that sort of stuff and they read maybe more aggressive types of rhetoric. So maybe like a Peter Thiel zero to one sort of stuff. And their MO is, you know, we got to make it big and we got to, you know, raise a huge round before we have any product market fit, because that's the best way to put our stamp in the world. And it's just, it's really fascinating to understand why founders make these choices. And a lot of times it does come down to the conditioning of what they read growing up, who they spoke to, what their parents would recommend to them in private, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting take on it. Probably a lot of truth to that. I think a fair amount about how tangible fundraisings are, right? You announce it, it's like this one thing, there's a number, there's like an investor or investors, you can get press on it. And so it's, it's this very visible, tangible thing for you to see, but also for the world to see. Whereas actually building a company is way more of an incremental exercise. And it's about, you know, 
incremental improvements all the time and, and sort of getting small growth numbers to become bigger growth numbers, but they're still you know, percentage-wise usually not that crazy. And you have all of these like small things you do all, all day. And that's really what building a company is. And eventually it's closing important candidates. And just the quality of the team, for instance, is so hard to see from the outside. But, but you can see, oh, these like raised 10 million and they're now 50 people. And that sounds like success metrics, right? Because it's so tangible. But actually, maybe you know, those 40 of those 50 hires are actually quite crap and their culture is broken. And like, they have no idea what they're doing with that 10 million. But just because it's so visible, it's so easy to tether to and like make a reference point that, oh, if they raised, I need to raise. And we definitely had this sort of imposter syndrome on these things where there were actually quite a few data companies raising serious money back when we couldn't. That felt quite intimidating. But it, it turns out sort of we, we think prevailing one over a lot of those competitors as a two-person team without any money. But at the time, it didn't feel like we were winning because they had all the tangible, cool headlines. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think investors also think this way too, where it becomes a you-know-what measuring contest where, you know, just like you said, you see your competitors raising, I don't know, $10 million and meanwhile, maybe you raise two. Investors will do this with other investors who raised funds. So maybe one guy raised 100 million and another fund raised 400 and investors are anchoring to that 400 and measuring their self-worth against that, which is of course not the right thing to do, but the, you know, the game and the incentives definitely make people feel like those are the right things to do. And of course, in the long term, focusing on the, the true KPIs that matter, which is revenue customers and, and general traction metrics and all the business stuff you mentioned are the, the true North star, but sometimes, and maybe you, you feel this way, sometimes it's hard not to look at the noise of how much someone raised. It really requires a lot of emotional fortitude to say, no, that doesn't matter. Yeah, for sure. For sure, it's hard. I think it, it's really quite deep human psychology to care to end up caring about these things, whether you want to or not. And I guess back to your, your point, like who you've been reading, I guess some of the ones you mentioned that might be more conservative are also the ones that maintain their fund size somewhere around or under 100 million, right? While some others have just like kept on raising bigger and bigger funds. So I guess you see that philosophy in their own funds as well. Taking a step back about crypto analytics broadly, there are a lot of analytics companies out there, some earlier stage, some larger ones, some that don't have overlap at all with Dune and, and some that potentially do. Like, what do you think the space looks like in five to 10 years? Like, how do you envision the, the market structure playing out? Yeah, I think, I think there's definitely going to be some consolidations on kind of some parts of the stack. I don't think there's going to be a ton of data companies across all, partly just because there's so much data and so many systems I touched upon earlier. So it becomes like a bit of a scale question to be able to actually performantly ingest and, and handle all of this data. That's not going to become a trivial task. But then, of course, you know, there the, are AI products and these things. So I think, you know, someone doesn't necessarily have to have the whole infrastructure to build products and use products on it. I think there's probably a room to build like a lot of different type of dashboarding experiences, you know, if that's 
tax accounting or NFT related stuff or, you know, some totally other segment or, you know, pro traders. All of this to a large extent is kind of data or analytics driven experiences, but probably require like quite a different front end and, and whatnot. I think we, we really want to try to be an enabling layer as much as we can. It's no secret that we're working on an API product, for instance, and really try to let people come together. We can make it easy to, to indulge in this data, let people come together, work together, slice and dice it in a million different ways. And then if you can turn that into AI endpoints, I think that's quite, quite powerful. That doesn't mean that we'll be the sort of only place in town. I think there are different verticals that are interesting, but I really hope we can at least empower and enable a lot. And then people can build, you know, take these APIs and turn it into a lot of different types of experiences. But I, do, I definitely do think that since the data is open, the dynamic of the market is quite, quite different than any experience we've seen before. Maybe, you know, it's more about your sales force or something because like which sort of product can, can get into customers fastest and, and you get sort of Tableau and Bloomberg and this, and they just kind of become some kind of standard. But of course, the playing field is a bit more open in crypto data since the underlying data is open. And I, I think that, you know, the end state is independent of the exact player. It's very exciting for people building and engaging in space because whatever happens, you know, there's going to be a lot of amazing tools accessible and a lot of community around those tools. Now, I know one thing a lot of founders do when they're just starting their businesses out and, and maybe starting to scale them is they'll look at playbooks that other businesses, maybe traditional businesses that came before them 20, 30 years before them, what sort of playbooks they use that, that will help a startup kind of have a North Star, have a playbook to follow. And I know you sort of mentioned with crypto, it's a little bit different since all the data is open, but are there nonetheless any North Stars, any companies that you look to that are in the traditional world and you're like, yeah, I think they figured it out. We want to be a little bit like them, not exactly like them, but some of the playbooks we want to copy. Good question. Yeah, not not one-to-one. -one. I don't think we're a sort of pure X for Y from the Web2 world. We do get a lot of inspiration from GitHub. I think they've built a fantastically powerful community tool. They have user profiles and that people collaborate and it's a nice tool. So I think that inspires us on a fair amount of product development. And obviously there's one early like open source communities and, and had that sort of bottoms up approach. So they've always felt relevant for us. Of course, there's Bloomberg, but it feels quite different from us, I would say. I think it's, yeah, way more closed world, way more like curated world of specific things. And I think what excites me about Dune is that it's way more open-ended and people can do arbitrary things with it since you can write code as opposed to sort of clearly defined thing. Also quite inspired by Figma, I would say. Now I'm getting more into maybe product development in and of itself, but I think they've created a very powerful, but also very accessible product that I think is, is cool. And also really taken, you know, understood that sort of in browser and collaboration 
is a true enabler or like you know can produce something else and then manage to compete or challenge photoshop and, and these legacy players and while there might not be any legacy players in crypto i kind of aspire for us to also try to really drive into you know collaboration and some of these things that are uniquely enabled by the open data and really build a product that leverages and enhances that so far on this podcast we've, we've touched so many things frederick we've, we've spoken about community marketing brand integrity the business of data and analytics we have a bunch of other non-related questions not easily categorized and so we thought we'd get into the lightning round section where derek and i just ask some personal curiosities some unrelated questions and starting with the first so this one's really been interesting to me to ask of you when you raised $69,420, how did investors take that? What was the conversation like and how did you come up with that idea? <laughs> it was quite random, actually. We were just in this territory and we were on track to raise something just over 70, I think. And I said to one of our investors that, and I just realized, like, oh, we could actually do this number. That would be fun. And I, I told one of them that, like, hey, you could please do a little bit less of your prorata, then we would get to this number, which would be fun. And they said, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> and basically that's how it happened. And yeah, I'll share a funny little detail. Might be a bit classified, but I'll do it. So actually the, the lead investor didn't know before we announced it. So only the lawyers had, had handled it at that point because they did the lead check and then we, then we did the Parado stuff with all the other investors. And then we ended up at this number and we hadn't really thought about telling them per se what the round size was. So they actually didn't know before we officially announced it in public that it was the round size, but they got a good laugh. I'll chime in with another one. Outside of Ethereum and Solana, are you guys more focused on supporting chains in a horizontal manner? So lots of different L1s, or is it more vertical in terms of building on a few key ecosystems and, and supporting L2s and and higher up the stack as well. Yeah, I think we're still figuring it out a little bit. It's quite a different beast to do non-EVM from our side. So one of the beauties of Dune is that we have very clean data for events and logs and, and these things that people will do, like a trade, like you can get a nice table for that in any EVM chain with Dune. So it's a bit of a bigger consideration because the data format is different and the whole system is, is different to us. So in theory, we could sort of you know, dump any data set into Dune that is a blockchain, but then the question is like, how useful is that? So we definitely aspire to, to add more chains. With this new data platform that I mentioned, we can increase the pace. So we're definitely going to go broader, but it's a little bit of a question of, do we go a little bit more vertical, which I think, still think we want to do on some data sets like Ethereum, or do we go you know, horizontal. So it's a, mostly a question of like, what UX can we create with what investment? I think I have one more grab bag lightning round question. And it's, I imagine Frederick, as you and Matt were, were fundraising and, and building Dune, there's probably, especially in 2021, and maybe even 2020, I imagine there must have been a lot of push from investors to have a token, or at least consider one. How did you think about whether a token applies or doesn't apply? And you know, I think the second question to add to that one is a lot of founders are clearly motivated by the token and investors push it. But 
how do you learn to say no and focus on what's right for the company and not what's right for maybe the dollar signs and the personal net worth of, of the team and the investors? Yeah, I think we care about a lot making good long-term decisions. And this comes back to the point I made on how much sense does this make if everything sort of drops 90%. And I think we just haven't felt seen like a compelling problem and solution with that that involves a token at this stage we still for instance you know we we feel like we, we just need to make a lot of decisions really fast we need to execute and build things and so we love our community and we love to reward them but we also feel like there's so so much work to do and we don't want to slow us down at this point so that's a little bit how we've been thinking about it and in general kind of just why we haven't done it so and a lot of our decisions are like this like our new data platform was a painful decision because we couldn't do a lot of integrations worldwide while everything was super high but now we're sort of standing here today with a system that's more performant and way way better for the future but that was a real trade-off a year ago that that was painful so we we just in general sort of have a philosophy to get to the right decisions and and we have one of our values is speed thoughtfully so we care a lot about thinking through what we're going to do and then we try to do it as fast as we possibly can so yeah that's that and then i think it's all about intrinsic motivation like we we care about building this we care about solving problems for our users and build useful products and of course hopefully over time one one can make some money from that but i really don't think that know, getting a lot of money is that exciting per se. It's, it's about creating an exciting journey. And if I, a year ago, decided to do a Dune token and it sort of was a rushed decision and I could have made a lot of money, but then now it's like down 90% and doesn't make sense. Like, I don't think my life would have been much better. And now I can actually have, have peace and build great products and, and just focus with our team to execute efficiently. And I think, again, that is just the consequence of, of having some rigor and thinking long-term. Love that. Well, Frederick, thanks for taking the time today to, to come on the podcast. And I think it was a very interesting dive into a bunch of different topics, analytics, data, branding, building things with intent. And excited to continue to be a supporter and user of Dune over the coming years. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And you can expect more powerful uh, things out of Dune very soon. So do keep in touch. But yeah, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation.